Welcome to the Regulatory Studies Podcast. Uh, my name is Joe Cordes, and I am Professor of Economics and Co-Director of the Regulatory Studies Center at the George Washington University. Joining me today is Mary Sullivan. Uh, Mary was an economist at the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice. She recently authored a public comment in response to the Department of Justice's draft merger guidelines, which have been generating quite a bit of interest in the corporate sector and among economists who work on antitrust issues. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. So my first question is, uh, what is the background of all of this? What exactly are the merger guidelines which are getting so much attention? The merger guidelines are guidelines. They're written by the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, who I'll refer to as the agencies. And what they do is they give firms guidance on how the agencies are going to determine whether a proposed merger is likely to be investigated by them and how likely it is to be challenged. They don't actually determine the outcome of you know, whether a merger can proceed because if at the end of this investigation, there's disagreement between the agencies uh, and the merging firms, it goes to the courts and they ultimately decide. Um, the first guidelines were written in 1968 and then they've been revised periodically with a one of the big revisions coming in 1982, another one in 84. They were revised again in 97 and then again in 2010. So the draft merger guidelines would be the first revision since the 2010 guidelines. Why have these merger guidelines gotten so much attention and I gather continue to get much attention? The, the merger guidelines, it's a pretty radical change compared to the previous revisions. And the sentiment of many critics, just to sum up sort of in, a, in one line what the feeling is about them, that the draft merger guidelines were created to give the agencies discretion to further their populist goals. Now, that's a little overly simplistic, but it does summarize the concerns that, that a lot of people have with the, the draft. Uh, so I'll give you some details. Prior guidelines, the ones since 1982 at least, have maintained the same objective, protecting consumer welfare. The current guidelines no longer focus on a single objective. They seem concerned with consumers, workers, suppliers, rivals, and just unnamed things that could be affected by competition. Well, there are a lot of reasons why you could object with their dropping the sole objective of protecting consumer welfare. But one thing having all these different objectives do, do is they allow um, the agencies a lot of discretion because the guidelines don't really say exactly how they're going to decide among all these objectives. Suppose you know, a merger uh, might hurt consumers, but it would help workers or rivals. But, you know, it doesn't say how it's going to sort these things out. So it would require discretion. Another thing that was adopted in the 1982 guidelines was they recognized that mergers can be beneficial. They can lead to innovations. They can lower costs and prices. They can basically do a lot of things that are good for social welfare. And these guidelines no longer recognize that. So it's possible that these the agencies would investigate mergers and prevent the stop mer prevent uh, mergers that were either 
neutral or even beneficial. Okay, another thing these um, draft merger guidelines do is they focus on these formulaic rules for identifying potentially anti-competitive mergers. And what I mean by the formulaic rules is you, I'm sure you've heard of the HHI and the market share thresholds for the agencies, you know, determining whether something is of any concern. Economists have really never liked these formulaic approaches because they prefer to uh, do more empirical work and say, well, in this industry, what is the relationship between concentration and anti-competitive behavior? And it's possible that in some highly concentrated industries, they're still competitive and that mergers would not uh, increase market power. So the economists prefer this more sophisticated way, and I, I think it's fair to say more accurate way of determining whether mergers could potentially be harmful. So what the guidelines do specifically is they elevate these formulaic rules. It's their guideline one, and they make these rules more stringent so that the thresholds are lower now for what they view as potentially problematic mergers. And then one of the very controversial things they did is they relegated the economics to an appendix. So symbolically, that's, that means a lot. Another thing they do, which I think is a totally odd thing to do, in the past, there have been separate guidelines for vertical mergers and for horizontal mergers. And um, normally what we, we would be talking about now would be the horizontal merger guidelines. And when I referred to guidelines in the past, I was referring to the horizontal merger guidelines. Uh, there have also been these separate vertical merger guidelines. And just to be clear about what I mean is a vertical merger is basically a merger between complements. It would be uh, a company and uh, a supplier are buying some component that is used to produce the product that the firm produces. Uh, so they're complements. A horizontal merger is a merger of substitute products. And those are the products that you're concerned about as being rivals. And when they merge, they could raise price or do other anti-competitive things. Combining the vertical and horizontal merger guidelines just doesn't make sense because they're, they're so different. They would really require two completely different kinds of frameworks and sets of rules for investigating but one of the things they did, and really this feeds into this idea of why they can combine them, is they vertical mergers, as you can imagine, can create a lot of efficiencies, especially one that's referred to as double marginalization. You know, if I am uh, a supplier and Joe, you're using my, my good to produce your product, I'm going to charge a markup when I sell it to you. But if we merge um, and you no longer have to buy the product from me, that reduces this the need for me to set a margin when I sell it to you. So it's referred to as double marginalization. And one of the big efficiencies of vertical mergers that's always been recognized is the elimination of this double marginalization. Ultimately, it will result in lower prices for consumers. So these current draft merger guidelines do not acknowledge 
in any way that efficiency or other efficiencies from vertical mergers. So it's um, a very strange beast they've created. Another thing they've done that is very controversial is they start the draft merger guidelines with a big section on legal analysis. And this kind of analysis has never been included in the guidelines. They've purely been sort of instructions on how the agencies go about thinking about mergers. But uh, not only do they include this, this thing, it sounds a lot like a legal brief rather than just guidelines, is the citations to cases that they include are these very old cases. And they're these cases that were decided before you know, antitrust really recognized efficiencies before they used economics back when they just thought big is bad. And so it's puzzling that they've just included these cases and ignored the more recent merger cases that have rejected the point of view of the old cases. Um, and and one, one possible reason they've done this is they need some kind of justification for all the changes they've made and think that if they rely on this case law that says, yes, this is how we do things, then that'll make it okay. Okay, so um, those are really some of the big picture things uh, that people have criticized about the mergers, the merger guidelines. Very, very nice summary. And uh, uh, now I have a much better understanding of, of why these are as potentially significant as they are and why they're getting so much attention. Um, I would just note as an aside that something similar may have been going on with the revision of Circular A-4 in the regulatory review process, which is a broadening of its original function to include lots of things. So it's, a, it's an, interesting, um, an interesting development. Um, in your comments, you note that um, one other feature of the uh, guidelines could be uh, to weaken what has hitherto been kind of a bipartisan agreement as to how to approach mergers. Uh, would you care to comment a bit more on that? Yes, uh, I think this is a big concern. Uh, and this is a concern that's been noted by some of the scholars of the merger guidelines as well. The, the overall problem is that the draft merger guidelines allow much more discretion to make decisions, for the agencies to make decisions, that would allow them to favor their policy objectives. And the focus on preventing further concentration and just stopping mergers for the sake of stopping mergers just is straight from this big is bad movement, the, which I think is referred to sometimes as the neo-Brandesian movement. Um, and the, the draft merger guidelines do specifically say that uh, they want to um, maintain unconcentrated uh, market structures. But some of the other specifics about how they do this or the, the issues that are concerning is by replacing the consumer welfare standard with this vague concern about multiple groups. Well, why do you do that? Well, it's because you want to pick and choose who you're going to favor in your investigations. Another thing, which is a, a big criticism of the guidelines, is they lack a self-imposed limit to agency discretion. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is normally in the guidelines, they talk about what kind of 
uh, mergers, they're concerned about, you know, reducing competition and, you know, being anti-competitive, uh, but they also have guidance on what kinds of mergers they're just not going to worry about, that they'll just let through, that they won't investigate. These guidelines do not have any of those self-imposed limits on the kinds of mergers they would investigate, which just means they leave it wide open, leaves a lot of discretion. And then third is just the rejection of merger efficiencies. This movement tends to think that big is bad and that even if big firms create good things, uh, efficient things, innovations, they just reject that. They, whether it's through lack of trust, just disbelief, I'm not sure. Um, now, I think this raises the, the question if these draft merger guidelines risk the bipartisan agreement that there's been on the framework and the objectives of the guidelines is what are the future administrations going to do? And I think it's uncertain. One thing I believe is that these guidelines are not going to have much influence on the courts because they're the guidelines are promoting views that have already been rejected by modern courts and contemporary rulings. And I don't think the, the, the presence of this old thinking in the draft merger guidelines are going to have any influence on the courts. However, um, and, 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 and that's an important point. Uh, I think if future administrations see that these guidelines have no influence with the courts, they may be tempted to just go back to the previous guidelines. Uh, and that's what I hope. However, um, I think once this neutrality has been broken and someone just rejects the neutrality to advance their own policy goals, well, you know, every administration has a policy and it might be tempting for them to just revise the guidelines to introduce their own objectives, whether it's, I don't know, you could just think of all kinds of things. Suppose, you know, somebody is against free trade and uh, then the guidelines could say, well, we think that free trade is to consumers, to workers. And so what we're going to do is if there are any uh, mergers that uh, of companies that, you know, have a lot of uh, foreign investment, they have plants overseas, they want to uh, import things, or they buy a lot of imported products, maybe we won't favor them. You know, it's just, I'm just making this up, but you can imagine other administrations with other policies introducing their own, you know, goals. So do, do you think that these will ultimately reduce the likelihood that mergers are consummated? I think in a nutshell that the big mergers will go through as before and that the medium and small mergers might not. Um, if the courts are not going to be influenced by the guidelines, then firms can agree just to go to court and have the court litigate them. However, this is a very expensive proposition and uh, it, it's just incredibly expensive to go to court. Uh, but even if they don't go to court, and even if the uh, agencies ultimately decide to let them through, the agencies can make it very costly for them to go through the process of investigation. There is a, you know, a procedure that the agencies have to follow in investigating firms, and there's a, a preliminary 
investigation in which they decide whether to drop the case or to continue to investigate it. And if it gets on to this second phase, it's extremely expensive because then the merging firms have to hire these armies of lawyers, conduct document review, and it, it costs millions. It's very expensive. And they can also, the agencies could also, if they decided not to fully investigate a proposed merger, could threaten firms to merge at their own risk. Uh, so they say, well, uh, we're not going to continue to investigate you, but we're not sure if we like this. And if you go ahead and merge, we might go after you after you've merged. And, they, and actually, the FTC has already done this to firms, which... Um, so, so in a nutshell, I think that fewer mergers will be consummated, but it will mainly be smaller and medium mergers that decide they don't want to go through the cost. So what are your suggestions to the agencies to maintain the stability and support that the guidelines have enjoyed across administrations and with the courts? Okay, well, just uh, to, to summarize a few, I, I'd mentioned these formulaic rules taking precedence over economic analysis, I would recommend that they pull back on that and just have the um, same role of economics in the guidelines uh, as before, and to put the formulaic rules in a subsequent section where they don't gain some, so much attention. Uh, the second one is they really need to get rid of these citations to old antitrust cases because this is this is not going to be effective and it's not in terms of trying to justify their approach. It's not fooling anyone. Uh, third, they really need to clarify their treatment of labor interests. And what this goes back to is what I was saying earlier about sort of adopting these multiple goals, consumers, workers, suppliers and so on. And just uh, to give you one clear example, in the past, the guidelines have been interested in protecting labor, but the mechanism through which they expressed this interest was through monopsony power. You know, you think about firms merging and getting control over markets and then being able to control the price and selling goods at a higher price than before. But then you have a parallel kind of power in the buyer's market. And so when the, uh, an example of this was the publishing merger that the Department of Justice stopped um, recently, a large merger of two large publishing companies would really limit uh, the ability uh, or the outlets for which authors could get their works published. And so they could really squeeze the authors and pay them less for these books that are published through their company and the merger was stopped. So um, the current guidelines talk about labor interests, but they never actually use the word monopsony or monopsony power. And what I would like the draft merger guidelines to do is to clarify whether they're purely interested in protecting workers against monopsony power which is the ability of the merging firms to control the labor market and offer lower wages? Or would they also be interested in uh, preventing mergers that through efficiencies could either hire fewer workers or switch from high cost labor to low cost labor? 
Another thing I would like the draft merger guidelines to do is to just stick with the 2010 horizontal merger guidelines treatment of merger efficiencies, because in the draft merger guidelines, it's, it's practically impossible for a merging firm to benefit from merger efficiencies it creates. And what I mean by merger efficiencies is that um, when merge firms merge, sometimes the merging firm will end up with lower costs because of certain efficiencies it gains through merging. Now, sometimes these lower costs will be passed on to consumers with lower prices. And one of the reasons they might be efficient is by, um, you know, not using as much labor. So in a situation like that, where labor is hurt, but consumers benefit uh, through efficiencies, how are they going to decide that? And I, I think in the past, it would be you let the merging firms realize its efficiencies, or at least you weigh these efficiencies against potential uh, harm from mergers. But in, in this case, you know, with these draft merger guidelines, you're just not sure how they're going to treat labor. And they need to clarify that. Uh, and then finally, they need to include guidance for what mergers would not be challenged. That's a very important role of the merger guidelines. And just for the sake of retaining more discretion, they haven't included that. Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful summary of the issues. And now I have a much better understanding of why it is attracting so much attention. And I suspect will continue to be a subject of vigorous discussion and debate. So I would like to encourage the listeners uh, to this podcast to read the full text of Mary's public comment, which you can find at the uh, website of the Regulatory Study Center. Um, the merger guidelines have been a hot topic all summer long. I think that will continue into the fall. Uh, and uh, we will certainly continue to watch the uh, story uh, closely. Um, we hope you will join us again soon. And once again, thanks much, Mary. Thanks, Joe.